Welcome to This Sustainable Life, Soul for Nature, the podcast dedicated to sustainability and stewardship. I'm your host, Eugene Bible. From passionate conservationists to innovative eco-entrepreneurs, we introduce you to guests who are dedicating their lives to preserving the natural world, then offer them a unique, personalized challenge to start them on a sustainability journey. But this podcast isn't just about their journey, it's about yours too. You'll discover steps you can take in your own life to have a meaningful impact. So whether you're an environmental enthusiast, an aspiring eco-warrior, or simply curious about the world around you, listen, get inspired, and learn how you too can solve for nature. Today, I'm here talking to Carl Safina. Carl, how are you? I'm extremely well. Excellent. I'm glad to have you on. I've been reading your bio. You're a PhD. You have an, you're an author of multiple books about nature and the environment. You've received numerous notable fellowships, and you've written for many major newspapers like New York Times, Time, The Guardian, and National Geographic. It's a very impressive list, but I was wondering if you might mind going a ways back and telling us a bit about your history and what brought you to work so closely and intimately with nature and animals. Sure. I will very slightly correct one thing that you said. You said that I am a PhD. Sure. I have a piece of paper saying I earned a PhD. I am not a PhD. That's a designation. And the reason I make that point is that I know a lot of people who think they are PhDs, you know, that defines right. them. And it was a noteworthy stage along my ongoing education. We might say that, but anyway, how, how did I get involved with all the work that I've done with conservation and the environment and animals and fisheries and all that kind of stuff? I've always been a nature lover, especially an animal lover, really from the time I was a little boy, I was an animal lover. I don't exactly know why. I lived in an urban place until I was 10 years old. I lived in Brooklyn, New York, where mm. there was essentially no nature. We went to the Bronx Zoo. We went to the Coney Island Aquarium. We went to the Museum of Natural History in Manhattan. And I don't really know whether those things made me interested or we went there because I was so interested. And I, I'm sure it was both. My father raised canaries in our apartment. So from the time I could remember, I could just watch little birds from four inches away while they were getting on and off tiny little eggs and hatching extremely small baby birds and feeding them and taking care of them and singing and stuff like that. That may have had something to do with my fascination, but they were there and I was fascinated. That's, that's all I can tell you about it. Right. How did you go from just liking animals to actually getting out there? Did you go to school and it kind of built through school and you kind of built interest there and wanted to turn it into a career? What, what made you jump into nature and animals as a career choice? Well, as a adolescent, I was always trying to do things that were more nature oriented. I had very bad guidance. Like no one told me you could go to school and major in anything relevant. In fact, when I went to my high school guidance counselor telling them I really liked animals, they thought that I should be a farmer. Really? In, in many ways, an extremely silly and ridiculous kind of an answer to that. But nature and the environment were just starting to be things you could major in environmental science. Now that it's easy to find programs like that. It was not an obvious thing. N none of the adults that I knew knew anything about that. So right. I really had no guidance and I just blundered into an environmental science program, literally by accident. And that part set my life more on a path towards something professional. But before that, I was always fishing and going in the woods and keeping little pets and making terrariums and all, all kinds of stuff like that, just like nature mucking around. Then I tried to figure out how to do this because what I saw with all the men around me lived 
what Thoreau called lives of quiet desperation. They went to jobs they mostly were totally uninspired by. They, they looked shot at the day when I saw them coming home. It was terrifying to me, and I, I wanted to escape what seemed like that inevitability. And also, when I was a little child, I had seen something on television that had the word endangered, and I asked my father, what does that mean? And he told me it means that there might soon be none left. And I said, well, that seems really bad. Maybe someday I can help with that. So right. these were always ideas that I had from the time I was very young. I knew a lot of people in college who didn't know what they wanted to do. And I didn't know how you do what I wanted to do, but I did know mm -hmm. that I wanted to do something that had to do with living things. And you ended up spending a lot of time out there in the field, observing animals in nature, right? Yes. Very true. Excellent. So now you have a new book, Alfie and Me, a, a story about how you and your wife raised an orphaned screech owl. Can you give us a bit of an overview of the book and a little bit more on what it's about? It's about having this little orphaned owl that was near death, that was re rescued by somebody on their front lawn and brought to a wildlife rehabilitator who was a friend of mine and working a little bit with them to stabilize this little owl. And, and then eventually the little owl came to us mostly with the idea that we would manage a release in our backyard, but there was a delay in the owl's ability to fly, probably because she had almost died and that probably messed up some of the timing of her feather growth. We wound up mm -hmm. hanging on to her for more than a year until I was convinced that she was molting and growing feathers well and properly so that she could be released. Mm -hmm. And that period of time allowed us to develop more of a surprising relationship with her. And then her first free flying year coincided with all the COVID shutdowns. So I was supposed to go away many times that year and do many things as normal, mm. but I, I had nothing to do except sit in the yard, finding the owl, usually a little before dawn, watching what she was doing for a couple of hours, right. doing the same thing at sunset for two or three hours. And I wound up watching what she was doing and, and interacting with her for, for five hours a day, watched her bond to a wild mate. That was a process that I wasn't expecting, even though I studied the behavior of wild birds for 10 years, when you watch one bird and that bird is completely uninhibited by your presence because they know you so well, you can start, or at least I started seeing a lot of things that I did not really expect. That led me to what is the other aspect of the book, which is the question of why are we so blind to these lives that are around us? Why do most people not care about them? Where does our valuation of the living world around us come from. She was showing me this parallel world that is always here. And I wondered why we don't usually see it and why most people are not very interested in it. So I started to look at the deep cultural roots and value systems of uh, other, other cultures from ancient times around the world and comparing and contrasting what many other cultures have had to say about the human place in nature and what our culture mm -hmm. says, how we value the rest of the world. Yeah, that, that's a very unique experience. I feel like I'm very good with dogs, cats, horses, kind of domesticated animals. I feel like I've been around them enough that I can kind of understand them, but I have very little experience with wild animals. I think that if I suddenly had a baby owl to raise, I don't think I could manage it. Was, was raising an owl something that you've done before or was this totally new to you? I had... Well, the main reason that the rehabber brought the owl to me is that I had a lot more experience than they did with 
owls mm -hmm. and with keeping birds in general. As I said, I, I grew up in an apartment where my father kept canaries and bred them and raised them there. But as a little boy, I bred homing pigeons. As an adolescent, I trained hawks and owls. I studied wild birds, mostly seabirds and birds of prey. I co-founded a wildlife rehabilitation group when I was in my 20s. That group is still going strong. And I've had a lot of experience with owls and a lot of other kinds of birds. It's awesome to hear that uh, you used to raise hawks and things too. As a kid, one of the things I was so interested in was falconry. It was something that I always wanted to do, but my dad would just never, ever let me own a hawk. No. And I don't know that I would have been able to. Well, me too, but my parents at least let me. So that made a big difference. They, no. I don't think they were very enthusiastic, but they let me. Wow, that's awesome. I feel like these kinds of stories always sound so romantic hearing about it. But when you're actually in the actual situation, it doesn't always feel like it's such a wonderful thing and can have times of maybe hopelessness or frustration. Did you have a lot of particularly difficult challenges with the baby owl? No, I think it always is wonderful to be around other kinds of living, living things and other uh, animals, especially even the things that are difficult from time to time with them. It's, it's still something that I just really love being involved with. The only thing with the owl was that her developmental delay with growing her flight feathers totally changed the plan of letting her simply wander off at her own pace, like a young wild owl would do in their parents' territory. So it was a difficult kind of decision to go from, she was just never going to be caged and would wander off as soon as she was able to fly. And then she'd probably come back and forth for two or three weeks and then go. That's what they normally do. So it was a difficult decision. It was not a problem for the owl. She was always very comfortable with us. We were the only life she knew at that time. And she was very comfortable in the coop. I, I customized the outside part of our chicken coop for her. And she was completely comfortable in there. She never tried to find a way out or climb on the chicken wire or any of that stuff. She just really was at, very much at home. And that was a problem for me because I was not comfortable. She was much more comfortable in the situation than I was. <laughs> And I always worried about her yeah. a lot. I, I was worried that she would survive as a nestling. And then every step of the way, I worried a lot about her because I know that freedom is very dangerous to birds and other things. And I also knew that there was really no acceptable alternative. Right. In the end, she did end off up just went. flying off and leaving from your place, huh? Has she ever returned? She disappeared for about a week and then she returned and then she has never left. It's now five years later, and she has raised a total of 10 chicks, 10 little owlets really? been sent into the world from her nest with two different wild mates. She has outlived her first mate who only was there for two years. And it's been pretty much as perfect a story as it could be with her surviving and being part of the future. She has had the chance she's supposed to have to be part of the world and part of the future. Is that pretty typical? Do owls generally have a territory or like kind of a home base that they stay in or, or do they usually wander more in the wild? No, they have a territory, but it's almost never the territory that they fledged from because that oh. territory is usually occupied by their parents. So they mm -hmm. need to go elsewhere and find their own stake in the world, just like our children are supposed to do. That's really interesting. Have her chicks then moved on and left the nest and just disappeared and never came back? Or do, have they also taken up residence there? No, they did what they were supposed to do. They have left and they have never come to visit. With one little exception that I once saw an owl that might have been 
one of her young ones from the previous year. I only saw that once and I only saw that owl there for just a couple of minutes that I was watching. So I don't know who that one was. I can't rule out the possibility that it was a young one who was visiting. She seemed familiar right. with that owl, but I only saw it one time. That's really interesting. I've always been kind of inspired by stories of people connecting with animals. I, I recently watched My Octopus Teacher on Netflix. Oh, yeah, that's a fantastic. Scene. I'm sorry, go ahead. Absolutely. I, I loved that documentary. It was so inspiring. I wonder when you were rehabilitating the owl, were there any times that stand out as being particularly special or memorable to you? Something that you feel like you're always going to remember? Oh, so many. The experience of letting her free, which was something that evolved over weeks of slowly letting her out a bit, putting her back in, letting her out a bit more, having her stay out a little longer, all of that, the courtship with her first mate, how slowly that developed, the eggs, the tiny hatchlings, the fledging of the young ones, the way that she was a really very competent mother. She always seemed to make sure that everybody got as much food as they felt like eating, not this stereotype of baby birds are all competing against each other and everybody's fighting for morsels of food. It was the exact opposite of that. Everybody was stuffed with food and she would go one to the other to the other, making sure that they didn't want any more. Oh, that would be something incredible to see. Like I said, I, I have very little experience with wild animals and observing them other than seeing them on our planet or something on TV. It would be so incredible to see that in person. Yeah. I feel like this is such a good story of humans connecting with nature. And I also feel like this is something that has become even more rare now than it used to. Do, do you ever feel that way that as a society, the human race has kind of lost our connection to nature? Catastrophically so, yes. I mean, what do we do at this point to reconnect? Where do you start? I feel like so many people now are just, nature is just something over there that you go to visit on vacation sometimes and you go and then you see it and then you go back to life. Like it's this separate thing that's separated yes. from us. And I don't feel that from a lot of people, there's not that will or they don't feel the need to want to connect to nature again, other than just, I go on vacation. That's good enough. Well, I think for most people, they don't really ever think about it. And for the few that do, you're right. They think it's somewhere in a place like cornflakes are in the cereal aisle. Nature is in Yellowstone. We're going to go to Yellowstone to see nature. They don't realize that all these things are happening around us all the time. And many of them are trying very hard to stay alive, despite all the things that we are hurling at them constantly. Mm -hmm. So where do you start? Well, if I had a prescription for everybody and for society that would actually be simple and work, that's what we would be doing. But what does work is, first of all, realizing ourselves that nature is all around us all the time. These other lives are around us all the time. How do, if nobody's ever told you that, how do you find that out? I don't know. You could join a bird watching group or something like that, or watch documentaries like My Octopus Teacher and have a revelation. And there are plenty of books and things like that to inform people and get them started and, and oriented. But it's harder to do that than it is to teach children. But if adults don't know, they're not going to teach their children. But bringing children outdoors is certainly the best way and letting them interact in any way they want to. A friend of mine yesterday was saying how it was so striking how her young children were in fact so focused on all the little natural things around them. They'd always want to bend over and look at a flower or touch a worm or something like that. 
And unfortunately, I've seen way more times than I can count. A, a child shows some curiosity and they get yanked away because their parents are in some sort of a, a hurry or they say, don't touch that, it's dirty. And there's another life kind of ruined for the idea of observing, connecting, feeling the joy of the rest of our living world that we're all related to. But certainly taking children out is the best way. And very little things, you know, a, a garden, a bird feeder right outside your kitchen window. Small children don't make much of a distinction between wild and domestic animals. So for me, domestic animals were more or less the same thing. I just really liked animals. And we still have a bunch of domestic animals. We have three dogs and five chickens. And we have a bird feeder and we are bird watchers as a recreational, one of our recreational pursuits. Although a long time ago, I watched birds for a living. I studied the behavior of seabirds, but you don't have to go far and it doesn't have to be, the entryway does not have to be a big deal at all. In fact, the smaller a deal it is, the better it is for kids. That's a really good point. I do feel like there's a sentiment of like, in order to connect with nature first, I have to be moved or awed by something. I have to go see humpback whales and that has to be my motivation. If I saw something like that, then I might be motivated to love nature more. It's always kind of a strange thought to me. I do really yeah. like the idea of your bird feeder though. That's a fantastic idea. And I think I'm going to do that at our house. We need to get a bird feeder going outside for our kids to watch. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody once said to me, I really want our children to love nature. So this summer we're taking them to Botswana. I don't know how they're going to love nature. If you just take them on an organized trip to a place that really has no connection to their actual life, they're just going to come home. They will probably remember a lot about it, but will that feel like it is relevant to them? Right. For young children, I don't think so. And what I said to her, well, was why not just hang a bird feeder outside? Let them learn what is actually living all around the house that they probably don't know. I agree. That's an awesome idea. And now I'm going to have to go find or make a bird feeder. One of the things that's really interesting to me is from culture to culture, people see a connection to nature differently. I live in Hawaii now. So I've been learning a lot about how native Hawaiians you know, lived sustainably for at least a thousand years because of that deep connection they had to the land and the sea. But in Western society, we kind of have this idea about nature being this thing that we kind of dominate or that we can use for our own good. I'm guessing you don't see it that way, but I wonder if you have any thoughts on how we've treated nature up until now and kind of what needs to change going forward. Well, of course, a lot of the indigenous ways of viewing nature are actually a lot more functional and you're right, they did last a long time without doing much harm to the world around them. If you look at the teachings of other cultures with regard to all the rest of life on earth, whether it's indigenous people around the world or the South Asian religions or East Asian philosophies, they all felt that all of life on earth had equivalent value and that all were our relatives and that you need to use with restraint and not upset the balances. But our culture, the, the West, starting with Plato in ancient Greece, said that the world is not a good place and that perfection exists outside of space and time. And instead of seeing us as related to everything, saw us as completely separate from everything. That view became the dominant religions of the West, Judaism and Christianity and Islam. Christianity in particular was quoting Plato, the early theologians quoting Plato in talking about how terrible the physical world is and that how we have to have our sights on getting off of this world into the perfect place, which is called heaven in our culture, and that we should be focused on 
dying and the afterlife more than anything about this world and that this world is here only for us to use and it's okay if we use it up. So these are catastrophically destructive ideas that have become not only the dominant ideas of our culture, but our culture has come to dominate the entire world, mostly in the form of our monetary economy, where the valuations reflect this view that the world has no value. So you can make a lot of profit while polluting or while destabilizing the climate, and you can keep the profit because that's valuable, but the pollution has no value, the world has no value, the climate has no value, and therefore hurting it doesn't cost you anything because it's got no value. These are, of course, totally made up ideas, but they are entirely reflective of the valuation of our culture, which is a catastrophe. Right. So how do we start to repair that going forward? Do you see the way going forward being people and changing culture? Or do you see this as we need to change laws and regulations or maybe both? Laws and regulations are all made by people. The whole thing has to do with people and it has to do with how people value the life of the planet, the systems of the planet. Most people just simply don't think about it at all because they've never been taught to think about it at all. When we are in high school, we get a diploma at the end of high school saying we graduated and we don't have any idea where our food comes from, where our water comes from, how our energy is made, where any of the materials that we use in anything have come from or how they're put together. We don't know where any of our waste goes. And then we are given a diploma and we're told that we are now educated people while knowing nothing about the rest of the world. Right. What have we learned in all that time? We've learned how to shop and buy things. And that's why we are called not citizens, but consumers. It's really a very fundamental matter of learning and we don't teach. In school, we usually take, for instance, math at different levels in different years. That should be done with ecology. Ecology is the study of relationships among living things between people and the planet, the life supporting non-living systems like the water cycle and the water table and the climate system. Most of us learn nothing about that and are still given diplomas. Right. So I'm hearing that we probably need to start with more education. Again, the best way, if possible, is to start with kids, but absolutely adults should also be more educated on the subjects of nature and the environment. Yes, but you can see what we're up against with that and how nearly immovable that would be. Somebody said to me, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine turning this current ship around because there's just so much momentum carried along with so much ignorance of how the world actually works. Right. It's, it's definitely a massive problem that I think, in my opinion, always starts with changing culture, which is never, ever going to be an easy task. No, it's not going to be an easy task. But the thing is, we also do know what the solutions would be and what the answers are. It's not like we don't. We do. It's been there in other cultures. There's enough of it in our cultures. There's even enough of it in our religions, despite how destructive a lot of our religious views have been. But like anything, there's, there's not just one line of thinking in, in any of these cultural realms. Absolutely. So we're running low on time, but I was wondering, we have a process that we go through on this show to offer you an opportunity to, at your own option, act on one of your own environmental values. I was hoping you'd go through it with me. Would you mind? I'll try. I've spent my entire life attempting to act along with my environmental values and to make those values a little bit better over time. 
Perfect. All right. I think from this conversation, it's pretty clear that you care about the environment. Is that correct? Obviously. So we have this question that we ask, what does the environment mean to you? And that is because everybody, when you first ask this question, will say, oh, it's the trees, it's the air, it's the water. But if you dig a little deeper, almost everyone will have their own unique memories or feelings about the environment that are unique to them. So I wonder, when you think about the environment, what comes to you? It strikes me as a silly question because in my life, it is everything. It's all the things I work on. It's most of what I think about. It's how I experience my sense of self and where I'm situated in existence. I'm one of the things that make up, what would you call it? The environment. I don't even like that term because by its very nature, the term suggests something different and something containable, not the trees. But if you say the trees, that makes a tree an item. All living things are relationships. They're manifestations of relationships among living things and with the non-living aspects of the world, the planetary system, even the solar system, because everything depends on energy from the sun. In a sense, there's no such thing as the environment and the environment is everything. Right. So when you think about that thing that for the purpose of this conversation, we're calling the environment, are there unique feelings or are there feelings associated with nature and the environment? Like, it sounds to me like I'm hearing feelings of being connected, thinking back to your conversation earlier about, about as a child, feelings of wonder, maybe feelings of worry now, now that we see what's happening to it. What do you feel when you think about this world and the environment? I think wonder and wonderment are perhaps the most basically human things, our capacity for that. And when I, you know, when I think about where we are in this place and time, one of the things that I think of is it's crowded out there. There are more than three times as many people in the world as when I was born. I don't see the world as three times better than it was. In fact, I see a lot of things getting harder. They're much harder for living things. We have in North America, we've lost a third of the birds, about a billion fewer birds since I was in high school. And of all the mammals in the world, 96% of all the mammals in the world are either domestic livestock or human beings. Only 4% of the mammals are wild. These are enormous, enormous changes. And along with that, everything is destabilizing. We have wildfires that cannot be contained anymore. We have gigantic storms that come almost out of nowhere and, and become category five overnight and smash into towns. And for the first time in my life, we had smoke all over the East coast last early summer. And I was wondering, you know, while I was having trouble breathing because Canada was on fire, I was wondering how the birds that are trying to feed their nestlings, these aerobic little beings, how are they coping with this? What is the mortality rate in these nests? All these relationships that are happening that we don't really, you know, we don't detect, we don't usually see. So right. there's, a, there's a lot that's very, very distressing. And on the other hand, I've also seen a lot of things locally anyway, get better than they were 30 years ago. We have a lot more whales on the East Coast. We have a lot more fish on the East Coast. We have the spectacular recoveries of some of the birds of prey that were near extinction because of DDT and other pesticides like that like ospreys and peregrine falcons and bald eagles. So we see that life can recover if we stop making the same problems, we can get out of these problems. Right. Man, I, I wish we had more time. There's so many questions in everything that you just said that I would love to hear more about, but I do want to be respectful of your time. And I know that we're just about out of time here. So 
just real quick then, I, I'm hearing from you feelings of connection, feelings of wonder, and now I'm hearing feelings of concern for the future when it comes to the environment. So based on those feelings, again, this is totally optional, but is there something that you could think of that you could do to act on those feelings? Something to either manifest more of those positive feelings or maybe reduce some of the negative ones? Well, like I said, that's what I try to do all the time. That's been my life project for myself in my own life. There's always more of everything. I could work a lot harder. I could be a lot more productive. I could not fly anymore uh, and all these things along those lines. But one hazard is that you can also sort of fool yourself into thinking that if you do something, it solves the problem. Whereas what really will solve the problem is if we all do what we can do and we insist that the big policies like subsidies to oil companies, like who are the politicians that get elected and what do they intend to do? Those are the things that really do matter. We won't care if we don't do what we can do in our own personal lives. But if we lived a perfect life, if we didn't even exist, it won't save the world. What, what will save the world is if we exist and we exert ourselves toward the bigger policies that matter. In my life, I always really hated the idea of commuting. That seemed like a tremendous waste of energy. And I have never had a job I had to commute to, for instance. I don't have any children of my own. I have a stepdaughter, for instance. So I think those are a couple of big things, but I'm also trying to get people's attention to some of the things that I see that I think are really positive. And closing myself down and closing myself off is not an effective way of getting some of that stuff accomplished. Yeah, no, those are all excellent thoughts to kind of wrap up on here. Let's see. Yeah, oh man, I'd love to ask more questions, but we're just so short on time. I hope that we'll get to talk again at some point. I hope so. Thank you so yeah. much for coming on. Yeah, I'd love to set up a second chat if you're willing to do that. If anyone wants to learn more about you or your book, where can they go? My personal website is carlsafina.org. That's Carl with a C. And the last name is S like in summer, A like in fish, I N like in Nancy, A Safina. And I have a small not-for-profit group called The Safina Center, also at .org. There's plenty of ways to find me on those websites or YouTube or um, a lot of things I've written will just come up associated with my name if you go online. Excellent. Any last thoughts you want to share before we wrap up? No, probably not. I really enjoyed speaking with you. You're a good host and a good interviewer, and I like your vibe and your energy, so I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to talk again soon. I hope so. All right. Carl Safina, thank you very much. Thank you. This Sustainable Life Solve for Nature is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Eugene Bible. Yep, it's a one-man show. I edit the whole shebang in Descript and make my own podcast art in Canva. Neither of them are paying me to say that, though if either wants to sponsor the show, get at me. If any of you at home want to help support the show, click on the link in the description. If I ever get enough that I can cover my editing software subscription, I plan to donate whatever proceeds come after that so this podcast can become a force for good. Anyway, if you've listened this far, it means you've chosen to spend a significant length of your valuable time with my voice in your ears, so thank you. I really appreciate every one of you who decides to listen to this show. If you have any suggestions for improvements or just want to chat, feel free to reach out to me at all the social media links in the description or check out my blog at verdantgrowth.blog. If you like this kind of thing, consider poking that subscribe button. 
leaving a rating or recommending this podcast to someone you like or someone you don't like. I don't really care which. That's all for this episode, you lovely, sustainably-minded people, you. Until next time.